It should be taught to everybody. It should be taught to anyone in any field. I don't care if you're going into business, into law, into medicine, into health, airplane mechanic, hairdresser. I don't care what the hell you're going to do. You need to understand this because these are going to be your clients. These are going to be your bosses. These are going to be people who can make your professional life a living hell. We should be teaching people how to get into healthy relationships because right now we're in the age of sort of the narcissist bro. Like, I want to be like him because he's a baller and he's got a yacht. He's got a Lambo. I want to be, I don't care if he's a dick, like he gets the girls. Is If that's a trope and that's a viable mentality and these people are being rewarded with billions of dollars and tons of societal power, I always say to people, listen, Somebody has a billion dollars. That's their billion. Let them go with God. Just don't marry them. You know, that, that like if somebody is really successful at what they do, but they're cruel, admire from a distance, but don't get close to them. You might even want to think twice about working with them. And so it's that sense of, it's almost like, I don't want to be Napoleon's friend, even if I could go back in time. I'm guessing Napoleon wasn't a good guy. But so we read about him in the books, but it doesn't mean we have to be with them or be like them. Hey, everybody. What's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the show. Today's show is with yours truly and Dr. Romani Dervasala. Dr. Romani is a clinical psychologist and she's a professor at Cal State L.A., He's also the founder and CEO of the Luna Education Training and Consulting Company. And in short, she is super wise, a very sought after expert on a number of personality types, one of which is narcissism. She's been all over the place in the public eye on the Today Show, the Red Table Talk, uh, Vogue's Open Minded, that series with Kendall Jenner. So she gets her ideas out there. And we are lucky enough to have her on the show today talking about her next book. Again, not surprisingly, it's about narcissism. Now, I was first introduced to her work on a previous book. I poked around and saw that she had a new book, uh, read that book, and wanted to get her back on the show because I feel like we are in an era of rapidly or dramatically increased number of narcissists. And I do not know if this is because of social media. So today's episode, if you are unsure, if you are working with, alongside, um, in conjunction with somebody at work, at home, who is a narcissist, or if you suspect some narcissistic tendencies, today's show is going to be incredibly helpful. It's very tactical and, I think, inspired because it's not what you think, right? We are able to navigate these things, and Dr. Romney shows us how. So I'm going to get out of the way. Yours truly and Dr. Romney on narcissism. Dr. Romani, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you, Chase. Thank you so much for having me. Well, um, we have just had a lovely little conversation prior to hitting record. As mm. uh, our listeners might imagine, we can't just, you know, we don't just immediately start recording. Um, but what I realize is that we've got a lot of ground to cover. And, yeah. uh, and I feel like the best place to start off our conversation for those who might not be familiar with you and or your work is for you yeah. to orient us. Is there a way that you mm -hmm. can just yeah. you know, take us back in time yeah. a little bit to your area of focus and interest and why you're on the show today? 
Yeah. So I actually bring a pretty varied background. I've worn a lot of professional hats in my life. I was a, a tenured professor of psychology funded by NIH to do research and, you know, taught you know, hundreds, probably thousands of students. So that was over 22 years. I did that. I'm also a licensed clinical psychologist and I've, I've been in practice, I've been licensed to practice since 19... 98. I'm definitely dating myself at this point. <laughs> and, um, and I, um, and I also, I do, I mean, I've done stuff around governance and leadership in the field of psychology and sort of, you know, how we, we think about issues on a macro level. I also, though, been sort of a media talking head of, in some way, shape or form since about 2008. Uh, part of that was because a lot of people are never going to end up in a therapist room. But they are going to watch whatever at the time it was called TV. Now they're going to watch whatever the hell they watch, right? But for me, what happened was earlier than that, I had in the early part of my academic career, early 2000s, I had gotten interested in the concept of personality, personality disorders, and increasingly was what we'd call antagonistic personality disorders of which narcissism is sort of front and center. And there were two sort of separate threads for me. One was in the research setting. Sort of what we were seeing was that there was medical patients who were going to clinics, narcissistic clients were actually probably causing the most havoc for the practitioners. They were demanding, they were entitled, they were angry, they didn't show up on time. They were criti criticizing the frontline staff. They were criticizing the health, the uh, physicians, allied health professionals. I thought not only are these people maybe not getting the best health care they can, they're burning the, the personnel out, which is likely causing all kinds of harms for everybody else in the system too. And that started a program of research for me. But at the same time, I was working with patients and I was seeing how over and over again, they were sharing very similar relational stories, families, marriages. And at the end of the day, they were really describing narcissism in their partners. And I thought we could probably cut to the chase here. You know, no, I wouldn't, it's not like the day one of therapy, I'd say, oh, and your husband's a narcissist. But I would see these patterns and educate them about them, why they're not okay, why it's not just how they are. But what really hit me hard then after I started going down this rabbit hole was there was absolutely no conversation. No one was saying anything about the harms that were happening to people in narcissistic relationships. I found maybe a couple of scholarly articles few theoretical articles, but this should, I'm like, this is like a five alarm fire. Why isn't anyone paying attention to this? They weren't, they still aren't. It still remains a controversial area. But what I saw was that the sheer amount of human potential we were losing to these toxic relationships and not having a way to talk about them. I'm often branded sort of a not very nice person. How could you say that? The narcissistic people are going through stuff too, and that's not fair and blah, blah. And I'm like, you know what? I, I Fine, bring it and we'll have a conversation about it. But that's how I got into this. And it was ironic because people say, was it your own personal experience? Because I've had a lot. It's actually not what drove it. I was doing it. It was it's a talk about denial, research, clinical practice. But then I started connecting the dots. I'm in my own therapy. And you know, then the uncomfortable truth sort of hit me like a ton of bricks. And as I did the massive excavation and went all the way back and saw it in family members and intimate partners and friendships and workplaces, and these were significant relationships that have changed the course of my life. And when that final puzzle piece brought got brought in, and as psychologists chase, we are so we are so indoctrinated. It's it's unfortunate, personally, I think, mm -hmm. to be almost robotic as practitioners, as though we don't have a life, we don't have an us, we don't, which is like only oh, it's that sort of analytic blank slate. I don't like that. I find it 
elitist. I find it distancing. I find it cold. And I'm, I'm definitely much more of a humanist. But I thought the more I can sort of be aware that this happened to me and bring that genuine presence to this work, then that was going to be the game changer. That was the game changer. Mm. And so then, then, and as, as everyone should know, you always, you, you should always work with people who are older than you and people who are younger than you. In fact, the worst thing you can do is work horizontal, older, younger, the old, the people, especially for a woman, I look at the, the, you know, the, the, the giants whose shoulders I've stood on in terms of being able to sort of continue and, academic research and just learn wisdom around clinical practice. But the younger folks, in my case, new tech, and it was graduate students who ultimately approached, former students approached me and said, hey, you know what? Your books are really cool, but no one our age reads, but we do watch YouTube. I'm like, don't be ridiculous. YouTube is for gamers. And they're like, no, actually it's not. And they said, "If would you give us a chance? Would you give us six months to, to work with a YouTube channel with you? Because we think we can make something of it. And I kind of, I thought like I was being like a nice mommy figure. I'm like, sure, sweet girls, we'll do that. And we're 1.6 million subscribers. So we started with nothing. Mm. Well, there is a lot there. And mm -hmm. specifically, I want to start on narcissism. That is yeah. the core of your work. That's how I originally mm -hmm. uh, discovered you, uh, your last book called Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and incivility. So let's just start at my original um, connection with you and your work. <clears throat> and in part because what ca captured my attention in that moment was, wow, I'm aware that this universe of social media, new emerging, you just cited YouTube, for example. Um, but I would throw, you know, all of the, uh, the Instagrams and Facebooks and Twitter yeah, yeah. X, all this under the under the umbrella. That, in some way, I feel like there this these are contributors to a lot of the um, this era of narcissism, entitlement, and incivility. And yeah, I think some science has come out since I started feeling this. But I'm wondering if you can start off by saying, mm -hmm. helping us understand the role that that plays in a lot of mm -hmm. these conditions, and you know how to how to increase our awareness. So the best way to think about it, because I think what what happens is the simplistic read on all that work is, it's social media, all this stuff, it's not an, what we call an ideological contributor. It's not contributing to the origin of narcissism. No one is becoming narcissistic because of Instagram, right? It is what it's done is it's created the fertile ground. It's created the Petri dish. So it is allowed to flourish there. It's given them a mothership. It's given them the, it's given them the arena as it were. So I'm old enough to have known a world, a full, full grown ass adult world where there were not these things, right? Where I didn't, I mean, I, I still type, I, at the beginning of graduate school, I still used a typewriter, type papers, still had to write code for statistical analysis programs. So I, I come from that era. So these things didn't impact me developmentally, but they are impacting people developmentally now. However, at the end of the day, narcissism, like any personality style, I wouldn't even say it's a condition. I'd say it's a personality style. You've got a personality. I've got a personality. Narcissistic person has a narcissistic personality. Sure. It's a maladaptive personality because it puts them at odds with other people because it doesn't account for other people, but it's also associated with success, which we'll get to in a minute. Mm. But 
what happened is the narcissistic people have always been there. They were there long before there was internet. They were there long before there was Instagram or selfies. I don't know if you've ever tried to take a picture of yourself with a film camera, but I do remember those days, like being in the Eiffel Tower when I was like in high school or something. I'm like, you're doing the can either you got your eyes or you got your chin or you got your ear. We didn't have pictures with ourselves in them unless somebody took the picture. So the the whole the whole selfie Instagram of it all, right? That took something that already existed. A person becomes narcissistic through a complex combination of temperament, of attachment, of parenting, of early life exposure, of early life environment, and all that goes into a blender, and that creates our personality. And the identical conditions for two people can still create two very different personalities. So it's not a personality science is not a perfect ideological science. But then you create this thing called social media. And I had a very, very interesting conversation, which I keep bringing up with a guy named Dr. Keith Campbell, who's a brilliant researcher at the University of Georgia. And he's been studying narcissism for as long as I have, but he's done it more as a personality and social psychology researcher, where I've done it more as a clinician, as a person who practices. And we both kind of agreed with this. Narcissism's always been there. This is not new. There's people who held court and behaved like jerks and had no empathy. They've always been around. They just got their audiences and their validation in different ways. Where the internet has gotten real interesting, grandiose narcissism, arrogant, preening, pretentious, always a thing. But these vulnerable narcissistic folks, aggrieved, resentful, sullen, angry, moderately paranoid, no empathy, lots of grudging entitlement, failure to launch, that form of narcissism has gone off in the era of social media. Mm. These are your internet trolls. These are your angry people online. These are the people who just sort of go down the rabbit holes and why isn't it my turn? And how come nothing's working out for me? That group didn't have anywhere to go. I think they probably were just sort of loners or lived with their, lived, you know, never got into <laughs> intimate relationships or anything like that. This is a different group now that the, they have gotten pumped up in a way and it's dangerous. This is a dangerous group yeah. because they are so aggrieved. And so it is not that social media makes it, it fosters it. And here's the thing, not everyone who takes a selfie is narcissistic. It is a means of communication. I've got kids who are in late adolescence, early adulthood, and I watch them, they, even they, when they were babies, it didn't exist, but I watch them use it. And it's not as dysfunctional as I would think. It's very seamless. They're communicating with people. They're engaging with their lives. There's follow-up conversations. They're using a language I don't use because I didn't come up speaking it. So it is, I mean, my kids aren't always taking selfies. They're on it a lot, sure. but then they'll turn to, and I'll say, what are you watching? And they'll turn to me. They'll show me a a, a video about how someone made salsa. And they're like, isn't it interesting how they made that salsa? And I'm like, I really can't be mad at this yeah. because they're actually just, you know what I'm saying? It's not that they're, I mean, there's some things that are dysfunctional and they all uh, did body image stuff and all of that. Sure. However, we also know about the research chase is that there's a subset of folks who are more vulnerable to the nefarious impacts of social media. And that group we can't generalize that to all people, but that group is very high risk. Mm. So it's a very complicated landscape. Has has it created a wonderful mothership for the narcissist? Yes. Does it cause it? No. Got it. So let's just go into 
narcissism specifically then since it's uh-huh. existed since <laughs> for all of Always. all of humanity um all of humanity what are the telltale signs mm-hmm. so narcissism as a personality style is characterized by somebody who has variable empathy entitlement grandiosity uh a need for admiration and validation they are they are envious of other people they think other people are envious of them they're arrogant they're selfish superficial vain um they think uh everyone wants to be like them or they covet being like other people um very materialistic very controlling they're very motivated by power and domination now all of that's happening that's sure. like this big sphere of narcissism what's at the core of this sphere insecurity shame vulnerability and they want to view themselves as perfect so all that regular people stuff that's not going to work for them so this stuff like the grandiosity and the arrogance and the entitlement that's their suit of armor and this idea of interpersonal vulnerability oh heck no that's not happening for them so they really come and muscle up in relationships and so that's narcissism and obviously there's a million more subtleties than that it's on a continuum it's not an either or it's not you're a narcissist or you're not, at the mildest ends on the spectrum of narcissism, you're talking about someone who's sort of, again, more of this Instagram selfie, look at me, isn't my breakfast interesting? Aren't I pretty? Don't I have a cool car? Emotionally sort of stunted and immature, probably not harmful, certainly not someone that you're going to have a very fulfilling long-term committed relationship with, not someone who's probably going to be a very healthy parent, but they're not harmful people, right? They're, they're, They're sort of ridiculous in some ways. When you get to the highest end of the severity spectrum, now you're talking about more of a malignant narcissism. And you're almost like veering into territory that's like psychopathy. It's not psychopathy is its own thing, separate. But in malignant narcissism, you see exploitation, coerciveness, deep levels of manipulation, isolation, cruelty. That's very different than someone who's posting pictures of their breakfast in a bikini. Got it. (laughs) Helpful. Now, this show. A lot of things on the internet um, has a bias towards individuals who have achieved some sort of success. This is one of the longest running internet sh- or uh, uh, podcast shows hosting guests. You yourself are a guest on television, for example. So how do we sort of understand the line? Because you're describing, you know, at one end of the spectrum, someone who is largely a high achiever and is as we are social animals right we do need to in some ways fit into the tribe uh and i've always said you can't fit in and stand out at the same time so there seems to be some paradox here i'm wondering if you can help us understand maybe thin slice this a little bit as does it mean Mm -hmm. because you're on tv that you're a narcissist does it mean that because this show for example wants to highlight high performers and high performers are probably from some trauma bonds they experienced in childhood, really uh, doing everything they can to get attention. Where is the line? And is there some sort of, um, if that's a spectrum, is there another spectrum, which is the health spectrum of peak performance, for example, or being an expert? So let you sort of ask two questions. The one is sort of the thin slicing, almost looking at this evolutionarily as a species mandate. We're a social species. We exist in social groups. Human beings are not 
lone wolf hunters. We, we've we always lived in tribal systems of somewhere between 100 and 150 people. It's how we share information. It's how we've always been. It's just back to why I think we're struggling as a species right now. We're not living in that way. But we are hominid species, which is just one step away from a primate species. And primates are hierarchical. There are alphas. There are then people under that alpha. The alpha is a, is a, a, a male designated, biologically male designated member of that particular tribe, right? Troop, call it what you will. Same thing with human beings. There is an alpha structuring to human beings. There are human, I mean, open a history book, right? They don't talk about the sweet baker or the kind miller or the angel of a blacksmith or the, the sweetie pie of a seamstress. They talk about the people who invaded and raped and pillaged and destroyed and in some cases innovated. But that's who we read about. I would guess 80% of the people in our history books are narcissistic, mm. right? So they definitely are the people who make history. They make, they, 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 when unfortunately, because of that, so much of human history is the stories and the narrative of narcissistic folks, not of the ordinary bread baker or seamstress, yes. right? And so, and it still is the case. Our leaders are mostly narcissistic. Our CEOs are narcissistic. Our celebrities are narcissistic. Most, you flip through anything. Most of the content by high, big, fancy, famous people, they're narcissistic, okay? Because it, it, in order to be playing at that level of playing field, there is a drive and a determination and a willingness to knock the other people out of the way to get there because not everyone fits at the top of that pedestal. Mm. So there is a, so this idea of how does this work evolutionarily, it works just fine evolutionarily for them because they're creating lots of little genetic copies of themselves. They're ensuring their place in the reproductive hierarchy. They're fine. They're doing fine. Got it. So, and there's a lot more thin slicing I can do, which will go probably deeper than you'd want to. But the going to the other piece then, if a person wants to be on TV, and it's funny you bring up that example, because I get this all, the internet's a very mean <laughs> place. Dr. Romani, you're a narcissistic B word because you really just want to be on TV. I'm going to tell you something very interesting because you, you hinted at this and I'm going to be very open and vulnerable Great. here. I had to go back and I had, you know, looked back to why, why did I want to be on TV? Because I can talk this big game about psychology and the public interest and I want people to learn, but I had to, in my own therapy, dig deeper. Why? Because I'm a very introverted person. I don't like being with other people. I don't like parties. I don't like gatherings. I'll always choose to be alone. And so why would I want this? And I'll tell you, I go back to childhood. I'm a child of immigrant parents. And when, you know, when we were lower middle class, my family struggled in their fashion financially. And when the groups of family, extended family would get together, they'd watch the TV. But, you know, it's like it, these, again, these were immigrant families that were struggling. They certainly were not paying attention to their kids. It was very patriarchal. I was a girl. There was negative 0% interest in me, my interest. And I thought, damn it, if I was on that TV that they're watching so intently, can you imagine? I'd be loved. So when my 45-year-old ass decided to show up on TV, I was a five-year-old girl who was looking to be seen. Mm. And ironically, I guess I was decent enough at it that they kept, I kept booking jobs. And then it became this higher order thing where I was actually getting meaningful education out there to people that would help them. But let's just go raw on it. I was the kid who was not seen. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in my little head in the 1970s with the idea, if you were the person on the TV, then the whole room would be focused on you and you wouldn't be ignored in the corner. Mm. That's it. And so that is a wounded part of me. 
Um, if tomorrow someone said you could do what you do anonymously and get paid the same amount of money, I'd be like, sign me up. You ain't never going to see my face again. Bye. And so it is, there's no, the need goes no further. If I honestly, if I could do this anonymously or not do it at all and get paid the same, I would be fine with it. Like I actually don't like being a public figure. It makes me uncomfortable. It's actually put me in harm's way at times. So I don't like it. Um, but it gets to this bigger question then of, you know, if a person wants to be a public person, are they narcissistic? Not necessarily. It really means we have to do the deeper dive on what does this mean? What do we hope for? But we also have to look at all that other stuff around narcissism. Are you empathic? Like, can a person be a public figure and still be attuned to the people around them, be compassionate to the people around them, recognize that they're no more special than anybody else, that they're not arrogant and they're not dismissive? If you're not those things, you're not narcissistic. You're just a person on TV. The fact is, though, to get to the highest levels, to be the person who is the person on TV, yeah, you probably had to do some rotten things to get there. It's just like, I don't think there's any such thing as an honest billionaire either. It's the same thing. You have to do some shady stuff to get there. So now let's pivot to what you brought up about peak performance. This gets into an, an interesting two-pronged conversation based a lot on clinical work I've done. There are some people out there who strive for peak performance for the sake of peak performance, to talk about peak performance, to view themselves as some sort of optimal human specimen who has learned the way to optimize their nervous system and their body. Does that smell like narcissism? You better believe it. Are there people out there who think of peak performance as work that is, like I think of um, the work on flow right? As people who have found something that is so compelling to them as a creative pursuit, as whatever it is, that they're like, the time just went away. I love it. And again, as a, as a scientist and a scholar, I have worked with many a person who will be in the back, back corner of a lab all weekend, running the statistics, looking at the specimens. There's no, no one's paying attention to them. The time just goes, it's not peak performance and they're just really good at what they do. And they derive tremendous meaning and purpose from it. That's peak performance, but that's the not narcissistic form of peak performance. Do so you understand yes. where I'm going with those two directions? There's the fetishized peak performance, and then there's the authentic peak performance. Got it. So this to me begs the question, isn't it strange that our culture can desire to celebrate um, excellence and by way of the media, by way of the vehicles that exist today that used to not, by way of who we decide to celebrate, that we are in fact somehow eating our own tail. We're pointing at examples. Right. We're pointing at examples of... Yep of uh, as you know to simplify this argument a little bit you're looking at television saying i want to be on television as you mentioned you know there are there are the five-year-old girl the childhood wounds and yet and then here we are all of us participating in some degree or another some willingly and knowingly some accidentally and this is why i'm trying to sort of excavate this so that we can bring it into our awareness is it possible for us to break this cycle? How, can you celebrate peak performance? Can you help your children look at people on TV as examples? Because otherwise, it's more difficult in an isolated world to find examples for our children, say, of greatness. Is it there's no one who is, or there may be fewer examples of people directly in contact with our kids and our families who are shining examples of what's possible? 
with this one precious life. And so can we then point at all beyond this to the television, to the media for peak performance? Or are we just going to give our children, or I'm, I'm using children here as an example, but are we just, do we have lower bars? Do we have less vivid examples of what's possible with this one precious life? Because we're worried about exposing them to this cycle of narcissism. How do we break the cycle? How do we help them um, see greatness when greatness might not be near them? I have a philosophy that you can't be what you can't see. So I That's fair. Yeah. I, I see where you're getting with that. So here's the thing. Media sadly exists to sell stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. If we think back to the early 19, the 1950s model of television, it's we're going to put on a little story so we can sell refrigerators. Yes. But it's always about the refrigerators. Sure. So it was never about the story. OK, so it is in radio was similar. So media is a platform that still somebody is underwriting this and they're going to get theirs. Mm -hmm. OK, and so as a result, that which is going to show up the most prominently and the most loudly and the most vociferously in media is that which is going to get the most eyes and subsequently the most money. And we are at a time where shameless, outlandish, cruel attention-seeking, ridiculous behavior is what's attracting eyes. It's a fact. For sure. Okay. Negativity, so, bias, all sorts of human things. All that stuff. That. Yep. Cruelty, yeah. negativity, polarization, um, uh, uh, you know, mockery, um, in, in, inappropriateness, whatever it may be. None of this is role models for anybody. I don't care if they're kids or not, but that's what gets eyes. And so then you have this bigger issue of how do you put the eyes on to greatness? Well, then the society has to agree on what greatness is. Because by and large, narcissism is correlated with success when we're talking about grandiose narcissism. Narcissistic people make more money. They're overrepresented in leadership. They're more likely to secure a romantic partner. So many of the key metrics in our society link to narcissism now they're not marathoners, they're sprinters, but they're noisy sprinters and they can get a lot of eyes on them. And the fact is, Chase, most people don't want attention. They're willing to be quietly great. They're a great second grade teacher. They're a great mechanic. They're a, a great um, volunteer at a food bank. These are great people. And they're not in our, you know, sort of in our public purview. Yeah. Part of it is like finding, you know, finding the diamonds in the sand kind of thing, because what's being put out in public often isn't that. But what it does mean is as long as we're giving so much airtime and we're excusing so much bad behavior all the time, because the fact is, I don't care if you're a left-leaning, right-leaning or centrist media organization, the noisier crazier a politician is, the more people are watching them. So this is no longer about the, the point of view of the media outlet. They're like, bring on a crazy politician because we're going to have people watching us. They're, that's my point is that they're still, they're still selling something. And so <clears throat> if a reasoned, empathic, compassionate, accountable, responsible, wise, thoughtful politician came around, they'd last 24 hours, if that. Because it doesn't work. And that's where I'm saying is that I do think there are 
great, they're great people. When I say great, I mean, in this not narcissistic, not antagonistic, good, present, attuned, empathic, kind, respectful, solid people out there who are, they're great and they're doing great things. The way the world is organized now, it's all but impossible to get eyes on them. I'm telling you now, I'm someone yeah. who's trying to book gigs for book. <laughs> and I get a lot of like, yeah, you're not big enough. You're not big enough. And I'm thinking to myself, if I launched a sex tape, which would actually be the greatest tragedy of our time and probably a snooze fest, but <laughs> if I did something outlandish, all of a sudden you're telling me I'd book one of these gigs for my book, that disgusts me. Yeah. And so you have to find the grassroots way to get out a message that's important. But as somebody who's been told way more times than yes, because I'm not big enough, don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Give us a path out of this because this paints a very worrisome picture for yeah, it's a worrisome picture. For, for, and, yeah. and I'm not afraid of worry because the goal of worry is to create action, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. and if I've learned anything, that action starts with a handful of committed people. What's the saying? You know, in fact, that's the only thing that has ever changed mm -hmm. history. So let's just say you have our attention, right? And I'm now referencing, mm -hmm. for example, <clears throat> your most recent book. Uh, that you mentioned because you don't have a sex tape, but we need to get this out there. <laughs> I never will. Thank you. <laughs> it's not you identifying yep. and healing from narcissistic people. Mm -hmm. So as a culture, um, again, acknowledging that there's a, this, this is a spectrum, but by and large, we have to take action. And when we give unwillingly or unknowingly our attention to I'll use your political example and any n number of other examples out there on the internet. We are actually fueling the exact thing yeah. that yeah. we do not want in our culture. So mm -hmm. please, doctor, what's the path mm -hmm. forward? We have got to talk openly and honestly about what this is. So here's where it gets interesting, Chase, especially given what you talk about on this podcast. How do we separate the innovator from the innovation, right? Because we're in the cult of personality right now. I've got all these kinds of tech doodads on my desk and on my computer, and I use them. And I'm grateful for them because they make my life easier. Have they ruined some people's lives? Sure, but they make my life easier. And behind many of these innovations was a really rotten person in some cases, right? I can, I we do not need to lionize and lift up and 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 celebrate and worship these people who've done who've made these innovations we can simply say this thing that was created whether it be car or device or platform or whatever was remarkable and there was innovative thought involved in that but we don't have to hold that person up as a paragon of goodness. And that's what we keep doing. It's almost like we need to say, if you made this great thing, you got to be a great person. No, not necessarily. <laughs> they had a, a great mind for one thing and they did it well. But in the cult of personality we're in, we're trying to create, again, it's this whole persona narrative we're trying to create around things. And that's what's muddying the water. So I think number one is separate the innovation from the innovator. Thomas Alva Edison was apparently a real a-hole. You know, if you read historical accounts, but like 
thanks, Thomas, for the light bulb, but glad I wasn't married to you. And that's all I got. Right. And so the I think that it's the understanding that there is there is that difference there. Number two is to know what this thing is. We should be teaching this. You know, I was just talking with someone recently about this idea of like when I tried to say, you know, listen, we should have a high school curriculum on narcissism and antagonism. And I was pushed back with over and over again. That's very negative. And we, we, we think that's kind of mean. And as long as we take that stance developmentally, kids need to be learning about sort of what is not okay in a behavioral repertoire. A lot of domestic abuse starts in adolescence. All domestic abusers are narcissistic. Okay, it's not some, it's all. And so being able to identify what's not acceptable, but you know, in the 1970s, we got the whole idea of government needs to stay out of people's lives. Like it was a, it was a great way for the government to save money, but what it did was it took away, like if a kid has narcissistic parents, where the hell are they supposed to learn about this? School would have been a great place, but the school won't teach them thinking we're ruining the family. So there's that piece of, and they should be taught in schools. However, we can developmentally appropriately teach it. It should be taught to therapists. It should be taught to everybody. It should be taught to anyone in any field. I don't care if you're going into business, into law, into medicine, into health, airplane mechanic, hairdresser. I don't care what the hell you're going to do. You need to understand this because these are going to be your clients. These are going to be your bosses. These are going to be people who can make your professional life a living hell. We should be teaching people how to get into healthy relationships by creating this, by no longer, because right now we're in the age of sort of the narcissist bro. Like, I want to be like him because he's a baller and he's got a yacht. He's got a Lambo. I want to be, I don't care if he's a dick, like he gets the girls. Is If that's a trope and that's a viable mentality and these people are being rewarded with billions of dollars and tons of societal power. I always say to people, listen, somebody has a billion dollars. That's their billion. Let them go with God. Just don't marry them. You know, that, that like if somebody is really successful at what they do, but they're cruel, admire from a distance, but don't get close to them. You might even want to think twice about working with them. And so it's that sense of, it's almost like I don't want to be Napoleon's friend, even if I could go back in time. I'm guessing Napoleon wasn't a good guy. But so we read about him in the books, but it doesn't mean we have to be with them or be like them. But what the pushback I've gotten from young college students for years when I was an academic is, because I taught a lot about narcissism in my classes, was, well, how are we supposed to be successful without being narcissistic? And I think it's absolutely possible. And there's great research on empathic leadership and compassionate leadership but it's harder because mm -hmm. you play by the rules. And if you play by the rules, it's a lot harder to get to be the king of the mountain. Mm. That was So I, I I think it's educational. Got it. Chase, I think we have to teach and we have and not pathologize. That's not what I'm going for is we have to give people permission to call out bad behavior as bad behavior. Right now our systems protect narcissistic people more than they protect the people who are harmed by them. Excellent and very insightful. That was sort of the uh, a thread that I wanted to explore. And I think there, the question that your students asked is a question that was on my you know list of things to talk about. And so I'd like to pull on that thread just a, a, a bit more. Um, you cited your own experience of being on TV as the wounded five-year-old. And I think mm -hmm. that what is of interest to me is as someone who gives um, 
provides a platform for other people to speak who have created innovation, who have, um, who do stand out from their peers for excellence or, um, achievement or success. Um, I'm, I shared with you before we started recording, I'm on deadline on my book right now. And it it deals a lot with the ability to, um, you know, what's the relationship between success and fulfillment. And, you know, and I would be lying if I didn't say that I have experienced some of the same things. I like to think of my life in two arcs, but that you shared about being a wounded five-year-old who wanted to be on television. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering is, so there's twofold to my question. One, is it possible to, um, to not just heal, but to transform in a second arc of your life? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's question one, and then question two: Is it possible to be um, to? I guess this is an extension of the question that your students ask you: Is it possible to be successful, fulfilled, and an example without being narcissistic? Okay, so yeah. So let's talk about the heal and transform in the second arc. 1000% yes. Now, when you say that, I, I'm assuming you're referring to the person was the wounded child. Yeah. And they heal and transform and reach outside of themselves. Absolutely. 1000%. Okay. 1000%. I work with, I, I mean, at this point, you know, through some way, shape or form, either in group format or in individual format, with thousands of people who survive narcissistic relationships. And while some people are definitely stymied for a lifetime, they're, they're not the, they're, by far the vast minority, the large percentage of people, once they get it, once they're told they can set, get set free from it, that they don't need to forgive someone who harmed them. When you really take all the existing paradigms and say, no, you don't need to forgive someone who is a serial offender in your life. Hell no. You free them and they can start to individuate and experience themselves as themselves rather than as a vessel that was basically pouring supply into a narcissistic person. Amazing things happen. I have seen survivors go on to write books and make films and to make music and to create art and to get doctorates and to go back to school and to actually wake up in the morning and feel like a functioning person. So absolutely healing and transformation. We are living, breathing things. Cut off, a tree keeps going even if you cut off a branch. Like nature always finds a way to keep healing and living, whether no matter what the species we are. That's what's remarkable about life. Now, to your point, can you be successful without being narcissistic? Absolutely, yes. But I'm going to say that with an asterisk. Yep. It really depends on what that person's definition of success is. If that person's definition of success is grandiose by definition, I'm going to be the the person who changes the this and the that, and I'm going to make all this money and all these people are going to admire me. So it's entirely in this sort of grandiose supply, narcissistic supply oriented, look at me, aren't I great model? Then narcissism is going to help you succeed there. Narcissism works really well in in a capitalistic economic structure because it's a competitive structure. Mm -hmm. Narcissistic people are built better for competition than people who have less of that quality. But that doesn't mean people cannot be successful. They absolutely can. But I will tell you, it you, you'll see it gets a little bit frayed in the marketing. Yeah. Says me. I mean, listen, I am I'm I'm a lot of things. I'm actually not narcissistic. I'd be the first to own it if I was. I'm I can be abrupt. I'm introverted. I 
can sometimes be a little like get angry at the world for not supporting me. So there's some of my dark traits, but beyond that, no, I'm very empathic. I'm compassionate. I'll own that. But I'll tell you, I can't market myself. I'm really bad at it. It's not my forte. And I look at other people like, I'm really good at this. And so, I, and I, it's just not, it's not in my DNA, my emotional DNA as yeah. much. So is that holding me back from my full success? Absolutely. And the way the world runs, yes, it is. Yeah. And I've seen people write and do things that were, I, I didn't even think that were compelling and they knocked it out of the park. And when we go and do the deep dive, it's because they marketed the hell out of it. And so marketing is hard for, I mean, marketing is very easy for narcissistic people. They're very good at it. And since marketing is the core of what can create success for any product, product writ sure, large. Attention economy. Is, yeah. They're going to do, they're going to do great. So, <clears throat> but I, I, tr I mean, really it's that idea of what is success until you operationalize what the success word is. Mm -hmm. Then it gets a little bit, you know, it gets a little bit tricky. But I have to say that I've seen many incredibly successful people who are, who are, um, who are not narcissistic. And um, I think that that's the, you know, we've all got our thing, but our thing, our quirk, our, our, our little bit that makes this a little more difficult maybe is not narcissism. Narcissism is a cake and it's made up of a lot of ingredients. An egg is not a cake. Two things. One, isn't it sort of, uh, it's, it's like a fish trying to understand what water is, it seems like, because it's mm -hmm. everywhere. So yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah, it's, you know, this is why this is a challenging topic. And when I was so excited to have you on the show, because it seems like it's everywhere and I'm paranoid just having this conversation in a great way, like, wow. I, and I've really, I, I, and I mentioned again, this book, I've been writing and doing a lot of self-reflection. And if this is like a, a fish, the relationship that a, a fish has with water, like you're in it, it's very difficult to sort of be aware of it. And then a parallel, similar analogy, if I'm a frog being slowly boiled, my goals and ambitions, you know, maybe at some point were um, honest and holistic and, um, in line with my values. And at some point the goalposts keep moving because of the water that I'm swimming in. Is it fair to say that the water is actually influencing me, the human, or yeah. is it, is it, mm -hmm. is it, I am this way and boy, we need to do some healing. Because I feel like my personal ambitions, to use me as an example in an attempt to be vulnerable here on the show, I originally wanted to be an artist and just to be able to you know, make work mm -hmm. that was felt compelling and honest and authentic to me and share it. And boy, if I could have this living, sure, I'm not a, I, I don't not want nice things, but you know, my ambition you know, had some constraints to it. And I, I, I am aware that that left the building at some point and my wife who mm -hmm. is earnest heartfelt compassionate kind mm -hmm. all of those things that i seek to be it was only through like her helping me understand that that my i was the frog being boiled how do we my ambition yeah. like you felt like your your ambition got more and more and more unfettered oh oh i mean dramatically because as soon mm -hmm. as you got a your spoonful then you need you know yep. then you need a teaspoon and then you need a tablespoon and then you need a and then you need a, a five gallon bucket and before i knew you, it you yes i'm saying but you need not yet you not everyone correct. you did 
And that's for you to understand what's the why of that. But what, I felt what, it what, moving. What feeling? I felt it moving. Mm -hmm. And so is this narcissism that is expanding because it's being rewarded on this these platforms? Or is this a culture that is sort of pouring narcissism back into individuals? You got to remember again, what we like somebody, I'm going to give you an example and I'm going to come, I want to answer your question specifically. Yeah. I mentor a lot of people who want to enter the media as mental health folks, right? Whatever it might be, whether they want to be on a talk shows or whatever the hell they want to do. And something I've heard probably at least a dozen people say to me is like, I want to be Oprah. And that's when I'm like, time out. All right, what is it? What, what, I mean, Oprah's a human being, so you don't want to literally be her. So what is it you want? Okay. And, you know, when you, and it was that lack of intention. It was almost like, mm. I want to be the last word on, you know, I, I want to be beloved. I mean, when we think about the brand of someone like her, it's beloved. It was, I mean, it, when it was ahead of its time, but it was created by many people. I mean, it was a construction of very, very smart people who created this at a point in time that was very different than today. But it's the, what is it? What do you want to be? Tell me, because for some people say, like, I think they wanted to be, they wanted to be super famous, but in a savior kind of way, which is to me, not a healthy want. Pull the strand out. Like, what is that thing? Like they might say she was helping people. Okay. So now let's work with the helping people part. But for some people it's like, I wanted to be that kind of like, Oh, you know, savior. And um, that's not a healthy, that, that to me is that's too ephemeral and it's not, con it's so, and you're never going to get there, right? You're chasing your tail. So it comes to this piece of, in order to thrive in these spaces of getting a message out on a platform. Now it used to be that the gatekeepers would stop most people from getting a message out. You get a handful of networks. They were run by people who wanted only one point of view and most people weren't getting on there. And then YouTube came along and social media came along. Everything changed. So there's so much noise out there right now. It's like a very, very, very busy, crowded town square. So you might just go over to the corner booth of the vegetables you like, and that's all you're hearing. And then that's fine. But to rise above the din, there's a, there's a, there's a noise in ourselves that has to be created. So you're right. In a way, we're having to pedal faster because of the narcissistic world we're in, which is why more than ever in history, the work that humanistic psychologists and others have written, authentically, who are you? What are your values? What are you about? Who are you? The real who are you? Not, what, not what's your brand, not what's your narrative, not what's your story is. Who are you? And it's a, that is a question most people aren't grappling with. I think a lot of people tell me what their brand is. Mm -hmm but very few people can tell me who they are. Mm. And knowing that piece can help be an antidote to this narcissistic kind of world. But it also means that one's voice may not amplify because for one's voice to amplify the way many people want it to sure. in these media spaces, you kind of have to play their ground game. You know, I've gotten so much advice on how to market, in this case, a book. And it's very interesting because some of the advice is pretty similar across people who are giving it. But it's all about amplification and and you know and and making a lot of noise and either that either you can do it or not. But we have personalities, we have natures, and some things work for us and some things don't. But it's a um, I do think we're all pedaling faster mm -hmm. because of what narcissism has done to the world. And I once had a, a client years and years ago who said to me, wanted to be famous, 
And this was actually so long ago that even YouTube was in its relative infancy and all that. Wanted to be like a, a TV star, a movie star. Want to be famous, want to be famous, want to be famous. And was trying to get to the core of the why of the famousness because this, this desire caused him nothing but misery. And the we finally, it took us a long time to get there, it was, and it was beautiful and eloquent the way this person said it. They said, if I was famous, then I'd never be alone again. And they meant that both in the literal sense of if you're famous and all you have this entourage, right? People always want to be with you. You'd never be you're sitting at your phone on a Saturday night, which I don't think is true. I think there's plenty of famous people who are lonely. Um, and that there would always be this world who knew who you were. So you wouldn't be alone because there are people who are always attuned or attended to what you're about. So that idea that for him, it wasn't about famousness. It was about loneliness. Mm. The book is It's Not You. We have, I think, done a little bit of work in today's show around identifying this, these characteristics, both in our culture and potentially in ourselves. I know there's some listeners right now going, man, I got some, this, <laughs> the doctor has just shown me a few things about myself. I might need to go do some work. Let's talk about the healing part because that's also in mm -hmm. the subhead, right? Identifying and healing from this. So. Give us a path to healing. What are some of the things so, that we ought to be doing? Remember, there's people who are going to be listening to your show, given who listens and, you know, who really are trying to be great and, and innovate and all of that, that might be saying, am I the narcissistic person? <laughs> Is there anyone who's sitting there saying, am I the narcissistic person? I want you to know that's the best prognostic sign ever, because the vast majority of people who are narcissistic don't have the self-reflective capability to do that. They either just turn it off or not listen. Or so if you're still listening, you're okay. <laughs> you're probably okay. Um, I would say that some, but you, you shared a very interesting insight that you felt like your ambition was getting more and more unfettered. And you had a loving, empathic, a loving, empathic wife, partner. And she said, you know, I love you. Like, what's happening? Mm -hmm. And you were then able to receive that love and, and not just tell her to shut up, stop. You're getting in the way of my ambition, which is what a narcissistic person would do. Mm -hmm. But rather, you looked to your loving life partner to say, she knows me. Let me listen to this. That is not a narcissistic maneuver. Mm -hmm. So right there, that dyadic interaction you described with her, I'm like, that just sort of like, no. It, but you can see how a narcissistic person say, you're trying to stop me from growing. You're jealous of me. You want to hold me back. That's what that interaction would look like mm -hmm. if your your wife was sharing that with a narcissistic partner. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. So, and it makes me feel yeah. better about myself. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. It's the not. So again, I, I, I'm not going to pathologize ambition. I think ambition's a wonderful thing. It really, really is. It's the, and what happens is ambition, like everything else, like in life has to be calibrated. So are you right? Ambition will go, go, go. And then we need the people in our lives to say, Hey, how about you? How about we just sit down and play some Scrabble or you want to watch a movie? And we, because it's it, and when we love what we do, I, I'm a very ambitious person and I get lost in it. And I do need sometimes the people around me who love me say, slow down, sweetie. Like we want to see you and not snap at them and not get overly defensive. Narcissistic people will do that. So my book is really about the healing process of people who are in relationships with narcissistic people. And that might be an intimate relationship. And I think in the majority of cases of people who go into this, it is an intimate relationship, but it could be anything. It could be family of origin. 
It could be friends. It could be workplace. In in the audiences that listen to this, I I bet more than a few listeners had a business partner who was narcissistic. And I'll tell you, a narcissistic business partner can destroy a person's decades worth of work. If you get into bed with the wrong person on that, it will harm you the way an intimate narcissistic relationship can, especially if it's a two-person operation. And so that the healing from the healing process from when you've been in any form of narcissistic relationship, it really starts with radical acceptance. And the key piece of radical acceptance is the narcissistic personality, the behaviors associated with it, the dynamics associated with it do not change. What you see is what you get. This, the way it is, this relationship, this is it. So you're going to make your decisions on the basis of what this is, mm. not on the basis of what it could be, not on the basis of what it will be someday. This is it. You know, it's almost like somebody saying, I built a house in Chicago and I'm hoping it's warm this winter. I'm like, you built a house in Chicago. It's going to be cold in the winter. Radical acceptance. There's no beach bathing suit version of February there. <laughs> and so it's that, that and it, it is literally that so it's that simplistic. That's what you, you've got here. And yet in its simplicity, it's a very thorny construct because the things that narcissistic folks do in relationships are hurtful and harmful and destabilizing and upsetting. And just because you radically accept, because most of us can't get out of all of these relationships. They might be parents, they might be siblings, they may be collaborators we have to continue working with. They may be people, marriages people can't get out of, whatever it is. You can radically accept they're not going to change. You can radically accept what this is. But when they keep saying hurtful things to you, it's still going to hurt. This radical acceptance around that. And once a person radically accepts, they go down a really painful rabbit hole of grief. Mm -hmm. It is because this is grief of the marriage someone hoped they have, the future they hoped they'd have, the parent they hoped they, their kids would have. They're giving up on all that. It's a loss of innocence. It's recognizing you were never going to have the childhood you wanted, that it left some permanent scars for you, that you were about to lose everything you ever worked on in this business, these are massive losses. But that hope is what often kept people going. It might get better, or maybe it's not that bad. And so the hope and the, almost the illusion or the not knowing and the lack of education meant that a lot of people were allowed to sort of stay in their happy, happy place, but the happy place was a delusion and it doesn't work. And so education, radical acceptance, working through the grief, and then becoming more discerning, because even if you clean up your act and mourn and grieve and go through whatever you go through with your current narcissistic relationships, I will bet anything I've got on you will run into this again in some arena of your life. And you have to be able to be discerning. So this time they don't get as deep. As you said in the book, a tiger can't change its stripes. Mm -mm. Mm. No. Okay. So there's, there's some hints to healing there and you've got you go a lot deeper in the book. Again, I'll share the title. It's not you identifying and healing from narcissistic people. Um, if we are to chart a course as an individual, you've given us a little bit of a path there with radical acceptance and, and managing grief. Um, let's talk culturally. Zoom out one more mm -hmm. time here. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think the best way to affect change is to affect it in yourself <laughs> first. But I would like to have us have a lens toward a future. What's what's possible culturally 
let's just say we can snap our fingers and paint a picture. What would that picture look like? So again, I'm going to, I'm going to, before I go to the big, big, big lens, like, sure. I mean, I would love to, to talk about a world where teachers are paid as much as, um, you know, CEOs, because if we really looked at cultural value, pediatricians would be the highest paid medical professionals. They're often the lowest paid, you know, so people who actually attend to children's education and safety that, and we paid them commensurate with the importance of their work. Imagine that. We, now you'd have all these baller second grade teachers like driving the the, the fancy cars and li living in the big old houses as they it's, should. It's going to be no surprise I, to you that my wife is a middle school teacher. So of course she is, and that talk about God's yeah. work. That's got to be the most challenging student group and the most important. Yeah. But here's the thing, though: if I had somebody once asked me, I have one wish, one wish in the world, and I think that would change all of this, is protect all children from trauma. Mm. It's that simple. If we could protect, you know, listen, I'm not talking that every child has like these perfect kinds of forever attuned parents. Wouldn't that be lovely? Let's just get the trauma off the table that children are not physically abused, sexually abused, emotionally abused. And when they are, that we have immediate and responsive systems in place to take care of these kids. And because even our child protective services do not understand narcissism, domestic violence services do not understand narcissism, children get harmed and harmed again and are often not believed. And people who are harmed in relationships are often not believed. If there was one thing we could do that could really pull this weed out by the roots, it would be addressed that. And I can tell you that, frankly, it's impossible. I know it's yeah, not going to happen. Right. I know it's a naive want, right? But that's really what it is. But this is why I'm, this is the essence what, of my question. So I really appreciate you right. going there. There's mm -hmm. the difference between yeah. actualizing that and understanding what yeah. could stop this process. Correct. So that's that piece. Now, the piece I do, so for example, one thing that's often troubled me is when we talk in the, and there's a lot more open conversation about mental health and addiction now, which I'm very, very grateful for. However, one thing we've never done a good job of talking about is how does the presence of, for example, a personality style like narcissism in a person harm the people around them? We're even a little bit cagey about talking about the negative impacts of mental health disorders on the people around the person as those like, well, that person's suffering. We shouldn't worry about the people around them. I said, the hell you shouldn't. You ever spend time with a family member of an addict? They've been through it. They've been through it hard. And we often do not support them or we write them off as codependents and leave it as that. The same exact thing happened to people who are experiencing narcissistic relationships. I get pushed back every damn day about how like, well, the narcissistic person may have trauma or the narcissistic person's going through something. Or maybe you just, you know, like, it sounds like you're blaming them. I am blaming anyone. I am telling people what constitutes acceptable behavior and breaking them out of cycles of justification. Because what we've always done is almost like we've created an entire class of people who are supposed to exist in service to the narcissistic people and just be what they need them to be. And everything will be fine. Just shh. Don't bother dad because he's in a bad mood because he came home from work. But that's the world now. And I think that if we have people who are trained to work with clients going through this and never ask irresponsible questions like, why don't you leave? Um, you spend two minutes with a person. You understand why they can't leave. Family court is screwed up. Everything is screwed up. And so fix those systems. Address the family court system, have judges who understand narcissism and the harm this has on children, you know, teach 
you have curricula, not just K through five, we nail it out of the park, K through six. Kids are sweet at that age. Middle school, actually, where your wife works, that's where the problems begin. That's what I'm saying. Middle school teachers are actually in probably one of the most influential educational seats, I think, in this country. Those hormones start to rage. The psychosocial stuff starts to show up. They start to the abuses be excess, that might to them. excess devices, yep. all that stuff, too. They can access devices. Peers become more important than parents and adults. It's a huge switchover place. There should be so much more psychological, social education happening at that age. We're so obsessed with them learning like algebra two. I'm like, oh my God, algebra two. They need to know how to avoid this personality stuff and be better, show up as better, and also have a place to work through some of the invalidation that they may have experienced their entire lives. A lot of these kids are going through it at home and nobody is talking about it because we're so scared, so scared of bringing up the stuff that's home. That's their personal business. It's not their personal business. It's all of our business because every time a child is facing down consistent invalidation at home, that affects their personality in a way that's going to turn them to an adult that can that won't be walking through the world as a fully functioning person. So you better believe it's all of our problems. These are huge, huge cultural lifts. Mm. And it's also about addressing things like authoritarianism, like addressing patriarchy. We need more equity and balance. We need less asymmetry. That's where we live right now. Lots of people, I mean, have very little power and very few hold it all, whether it's through money or access to platforms or whatever. We've got a lot of work to do. I can, and again, I'm a big fan of saying tend to your own garden. It's like a twist on Voltaire, basically. Something I wrote about in um, in my first book, second book, and this book as well, which is I am not going to protect all children from trauma. I am not going to overhaul K through 12 systems all over the planet. But what I've done is I've developed a training program for therapists, 36 hours with a certification that therapists at least can learn about how to work with clients going through these relationships without blaming them and wondering like, well, was it how you talk to them? I've heard of therapists saying to clients, well, maybe, maybe your anxiety is why he's so angry. No, yelling is not okay. We are not holding space for this person's yelling and abusive comments. We've got to give people to identify unacceptable behavior as unacceptable. That's where this starts. Hold it accountable. Okay, this Hold accountable. last question that I have for today, and I think it's potentially spicy uh, because my understanding, just a little retread, is we talked a little bit about um, at, at the individual level, right? The identification at the individual level, the healing. And then we zoomed out and we talked a little bit about the as much as we can and given the constraints of our of our you know, conversation here time and whatnot um then we zoomed out culturally identifying sort of narcissism and how culturally you just went through a lovely um articulation of what needs to happen culturally we know that's a big that's a big bite that we need to take it's i statistically some people who are listening to the show right now are narcissists. Mm -hmm. What do we, what message do you have for them? And is it mm -hmm. possible to send sort of a, a message of optimism and healing? Or is it just like, yo, F off, stop ruining it for everybody? Like, what's the message no. to the narcissist? I would never say F off and stop ruining it for everybody. It's do the work. That's the message. Do the damn work. All the rest of us are. 
we're crying our souls out in therapist's office every day because of all the invalidation we've experienced. Do the work, show up into therapy, be accountable, take responsibility, understand what's involved in a human relationship, get out of your own damn way. Um, but listen, what I'm saying, 90% of people with this personality style will roll their eyes, do look at their device. I've, 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 I've experienced contempt in all its forms. I know how they're going to react. But there are people out there every so often, every so often they'll be the narcissistic person who cheated on wives and girlfriends or partners or, you know, was a jerk at work and took advantage of people and threw people under the bus. And one day they become a dad. And that's the day they're like, okay, am I going to keep being a jerk? A lot of them do. But then there's some who say, okay, something's got to give. There's not every narcissistic person hits a rock bottom. Some do, some do, but not everyone does. Sometimes it, they lose everybody, right? The kids stop speaking to them. The wife leaves. Nobody wants them. If again, listen, if unless you're well, if you're a well-resourced narcissistic person, you're always going to be able to find the much younger partner to 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 take up with you. And you're a very old person, right? So there's always going to be someone working the same hustle you are. But if you're not that person, you will end up dying alone somewhere. And it's a, um, but I, I, narcissistic people are very reward driven, but not consequence driven. So they're thinking about what's in front of them. It's it's a, it's a tough thing as a public call out, right? I think that it is, it is do the work, but really do the work. Therapy is not meant to be performative. Like you see people in a city like LA, it's not like the olden days where people would be ashamed to talk about being in therapy, which is a good thing. But a lot of narcissistic folks actually have their whole therapy industrial complex work and they got the therapist, they got the coach, they got the men's group, they got the kale smoothie group, they've got the morning hikes, they got the meditation this, they've got the micro dosing that and the psychedelic, whatever the hell it is that they got their whole thing going, but they're making absolutely no progress because ultimately to address your narcissism is to hold space for your vulnerability, for your shame, to let go of the construct of perfectionism, to accord other people's needs at the same level as yours, to put your pull yourself out as the sun in the solar system and perhaps make yourself a lesser planet. And that is a huge shift. And what we see with a lot of narcissistic folks is that some of them will make a little bit of progress in therapy. It's usually not enough to save a relationship, but um, they're very reactive. So when things don't go their way, the, the, the launch doesn't go the way they want, or the money doesn't come in the way they want, or somebody rejects them the way they don't want, they're very reactive and angry. Sorry is not an eraser. This idea that an apology makes it better is BS. And narcissistic, learn to apologize. Like at least if you're going to apologize, do it right and be accountable. Not, I'm sorry you feel that way. Learn to make amends. Learn to take accountability. Learn that some people don't come around. Learn that you may not always be forgiven because you don't get to be forgiven, especially if you screwed someone twice. It's all of that stuff. But it, it's about humility. It's about vulnerability. It's about addressing shame. And, you know, if you have, or if somebody's narcissistic and they say, but you know, I had a rough childhood. My old man was a tough guy and he threw me around, then get trauma work because that's that, that meat, those are old wounds. Get in there, do that trauma work. Like it's work and it's, it's, it's humble work. It has to matter to you. For most people, they don't have any skin in the game mm. because they think everything's fine, especially if they're at the top of their game. Mm. So insightful, so helpful. 
I want to say thank you. It's been an absolute thank you, treat thanks. having you on the show. Again, the book for everyone out there. It's not you identifying and healing from narcissistic people. Um, thank you so much for being a guest and for sharing this insight with us. And um, I think there's a lot of, uh, I think we have some people's attention based on today's show. So thank you for sharing. I hope so. And again, I believe everyone has the potential to heal if they put in the time, including the narcissistic folks, but the time and the effort, it's real. You got to be willing, you got to be willing to, you know, to, to, to have the humility to do so. And that's one of the hardest things to do. So thank you again. I wish you all the luck on getting your book done. I'm very happy for you. So um, it will happen. It will happen. Obviously it always does. Somehow it always needs a deadline. I'm sure you will. So thank you. It's true. Thank you so much. And signing off the doctor and myself, we bid you an amazing day. Thank you very much. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community, all of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive, positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing for this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. Mm-hmm.